All right, we are back. As much as we hate to get sucked into the political morass that surrounds, well, the whining Republican Party, we have to back up and address this whole so-called controversy about Obama's remarks at the National Prayer Breakfast. I think I'll quote from a piece by Juliet Elperin in the Washington Post from February 6th. She noted that President Barack Obama has never been one to go easy on America. As a new president, he dismissed the idea of American exceptionalism, noting that Greeks think their country special too. He labeled the Bush-era interrogation practices euphemistically called harsh for years as torture. America, he suggested, has much to answer given its history in Latin America and the Middle East. His latest challenge came last Thursday at the National Prayer Breakfast. Amid global anxiety over Islamist terrorism, Obama noted pointedly that his fellow Christians, who make up the vast majority of Americans, should perhaps not be the ones to cast the first stone. He said, quote, Humanity has been grappling with these questions throughout human history. Speaking of the tension between the compassion and murderous acts religions can inspire, saying, Unless we get on our high horse and think this is unique to some other place, Remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. In our home country, slavery and Jim Crow all too often was justified in the name of Christ. Apparently, despite the factual accuracy of these statements, Elper noted that some Republicans were outraged. We need at some point Mr. Marillan to come back and <laughs> readdress something we tried many years back, which was to tell the story of... The Crusades. There's probably no more bloody and stupid episode you could cite in all of human history than the effort of so-called Christians to rise up and take back the Holy Land from the Saracens that were there. When we first started doing radio, we attempted to to tackle this topic, but it's really something you can't do in a segment. You probably can't do it in a whole hour. So we certainly can't reiterate it here in a minute, except to say that it is perhaps worthy of note that the first crusade, headed by Peter the Hermit, at the suggestion of Pope Urban II, set off to reconquer the Middle East, but never made it that far. In fact, the Christians living in the Balkan areas rose up and slew the army (laughs) headed through their lands simply because they were behaving so badly. But uh, Republicans in this country, and a lot of conservatives, and a lot of Christians, and just a lot of dumbass people, prefer, of course, their own version of reality to the one that, uh, you know, (laughs) is in the history books, and we would add, is a matter of record. So it was, you can see something like uh, Eric Bowling of Fox News come forward in the wake of Obama's statements to say, quote, Reports say radical Muslim jihadists killed thousands of people in the, in the past few months alone. And yet, when you take Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever... Their combined killings in the name of religion? Well, that would be zero. This prompted a column by Lollard Fish in the Daily Coast to, well, educate Mr. Bowling and a few others about just a few examples out there of of religions other than Islam committing acts of violence. And in doing so, he elected not to pick the low-hanging fruit and cite things like the Crusades, but just talked about things in the news of late, like the following headlines from the Central African Republic. Tens of thousands of Muslims free Christian militias. From Burma, Buddhists kill scores of Muslims. From the alternate, ten killings in the U.S. inspired by Christianity, starting with the Sikh temple. 
From the Middle East, three Jews confessed a burning Palestinian teenager alive. Or how about the role played by militant rabbis in the murder of Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli prime minister who was shot because he was trying to bring peace to the area? Noted Lollard Fish, none of this excuses the horrific acts of violence perpetrated by Muslims. But he noted the problem isn't Islam, the problem isn't Christianity or any other religion either. The problem is ideology. When an ideology splits the world between us and them, same and other, human and dehumanized, it enables violence. Religious ideology is especially good for this, though certain secular ideologies have outstripped religion by far in the 20th century. He predicted we're going to see a lot of this in the 21st. This might be a good time to mention one obituary we we should cite, and we are going to do in the weeks to come a, a whole 60 minutes, I think, of a lot of people who passed away in the last year we didn't have a chance to cite specifically. But, uh, Let's talk about the passing of David Landau. He was described by The Economist as an outstanding editor of Israel's leading liberal daily newspaper, Haaretz. He was a valued, courageous, and insightful correspondent for many years for The Economist. They note that he was born and educated in Britain and emigrated in 1970 to Israel, where he quickly made a mark as a journalist. In time, he became the managing editor of the Jerusalem Post, But by 1990, dismayed by the hawkishness of the new owners, he led a walkout of staff. In 1997, four years after joining Haaretz, he founded its English-language edition, still respected throughout the world, including many Arab capitals, as the voice of liberal, secular, peace-seeking Israel. From 2004 to 2008, he was a valiant editor-in-chief of both its Hebrew and English versions. Noted The Economist, Mr. Landau, though a powerful advocate of the two-state solution and justice for the Palestinians, was no routine liberal. Deeply religious himself, he deplored the co-opting of religious Jews into the nationalist and settler camp and argued that there is no contradiction in calling for a Palestine alongside an Israel in which Judaism, including the ultra-Orthodox kind, must be a vital component. In his book, Piety and Power, The World of Jewish Fundamentalism, he wrote, We have to work intensively to reassure the Islamic world that Islam would be protected as a way of life. If Torah Jewry is capable of fulfilling this role, then it is duty-bound to do so. Note of the Economist, Mr. Landau was a writer of wit and integrity whose thirst for justice for Palestinians and for a better understanding of Israel across the world was paramount. He will be sorely and widely missed. We've noted in this program in the past that we hope, in the not-too-distant future, to make another trip to Cuba. We were advised by Tony Wheeler on this program to get there before things change, and uh, that's something we'd like to do and would actually echo that opinion. Um, Cuba is going to change a great deal when the Castros pass from the scene. And I think almost anyone would profit from seeing the system that exists now under communism and comparing it to what is going to follow. Not all of it's going to be good, but I'm here to tell you that at least some of it's going to be. This correspondent is quite encouraged uh, by the fact that it is at least now possible to receive emails from Cuba. Peace in the Sacramento Bee on January 27th by a Michael Wisserstein talks about uh, the Cuban efforts to get on the web. Oh, and by the way, there is a ban on Wi-Fi still in place in Cuba. But the piece notes that cut off from the internet, young Cubans have quietly linked thousands of computers into a hidden network that stretches miles across Havana. This lets them chat with friends, play games, and download hit movies in a mini replica of the online world that most 
can't access. Peace notes that home internet connections are banned for all but a handful of Cubans, and the government charges nearly a quarter of a month's salary for an hour online in the government-run hotels and internet centers. As a result, most people on the island live offline, complaining about their lack of access to information and contact with friends and family abroad. Peace notes that Cuba's status as one of the world's least wired countries is central to the new relationship Washington is trying to forge with Havana. As part of a new policy seeking broader engagement, the Obama administration hopes that encouraging wider U.S. technology sales to the island will widen Internet access and help increase Cubans' independence from the state and lay the groundwork for political reform. And frankly, we applaud all of that. We reported some weeks back that we were extremely disappointed with the Obama administration's um, proposal that we should spend like a trillion dollars with a T to upgrade our uh, nuclear facilities and nuclear capabilities. Frankly, we think that trillion dollars could be better spent on just about anything else. But it might be worth taking a minute or two to just talk about the current state of affairs in the nuclear world. And to do that, we'll use the briefing section from the week, the January 23rd issue, and just uh, re-report on their reporting. The headline of the piece was, Our Aging Nuclear Arsenal. The subheadline was, Outdated and Underfunded, America's Decrepit Nuclear Program Could Be One Mishap Away from Catastrophe. First question was, How Bad is the Situation? Leak reported that the Pentagon recently admitted there are systemic problems across the nuclear enterprise. Thanks to arms control treaties and the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has reduced its stockpile of nuclear weapons from 31,000 at its height to about 4,800. But they note as fears of nuclear war ease, the government failed to adequately maintain and update this immensely dangerous arsenal. Well, you shouldn't, shouldn't you budget that in? They note the arsenal still contains enough collective destructive force to lay waste to every country on Earth, probably with about 300 to spare. The U.S. has 450 intercontinental ballistic missiles are stored in decaying 60-year-old nuclear silos in Montana, North Dakota, and Wyoming that look like a poorly maintained Cold War museum. The piece notes that the demoralized Air Force personnel safeguarding the weapons have been plagued by scandals reaching the very top of the command structure. They quote Air Force Lieutenant General James Kowalski as saying, Today, the real nuclear threat to America isn't an enemy strike. It's an accident. The greatest risk is doing something stupid, which makes us pause and say, well, how is it that updating all these facilities is going to help that situation? Shouldn't um, dismantling all but the tiniest number of nuclear weapons we need to serve as a credible deterrent be the answer? But I digress. The second question was, how old are America's nukes? The magazine pointed out that the average age of a nuclear warhead is 27 years. Many of the buildings where the nuclear missiles and bombers are stored date back to the 1950s, and it shows. Blast doors on the country's nuclear missile silos are too rusty to seal shut. They note that the roof of the U.S. security complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, that houses most of the U.S. supply of enriched uranium, collapsed last March. And they note that for years, three ICBM complexes had just one working wrench available to tighten the bolts on the missile's warheads. When the wrench was needed, the workers would FedEx it from base to base. But wait, it gets better. Today, the principal information technology used to operate and launch our ICBMs is an 8-inch floppy disk from the 1960s. Okay, we're starting to see some need for upgrades here. 
well, that is if you can create a new wrench that doesn't cost like a billion dollars. I don't know, this, this piece does get you know, reminiscent of Dr. Strange love. Next question is, is the staff demoralized? Talking about our ICBM silos. The magazine responds, that's an understatement. The Air Force officers spend long shifts in a hole underground waiting for a launch order that will probably never come. Yeah, isn't it a shame those poor fellows never get a chance to push the nuclear button? It goes on, quote, their buddies from the B-52s and the B-2s tell them all sorts of exciting stories about doing real things in Afghanistan and Iraq. And Hans Christensen, director of the Federation of Atomic Scientists Nuclear Information Project, told Mother Jones that a sense of frustration has led to trouble. In 2013, the Pentagon announced it was investigating a drug ring operating across six nuclear launch facilities. Then, when examining the phones of two Montana officers suspected of using ecstasy and amphetamines, Air Force commanders unwittingly uncovered a cheating scandal that implicated 98 missilers. Apparently, the officers had been texting each other answers for the monthly exams, which test a missiler's knowledge of security procedures and classified launch codes. They go on to note that the institutional rot has led to a number of frightening near misses. Such as, you ask? Well, in 2007, six nuclear missiles went missing from North Dakota facility for 36 hours. It turned out they'd been accidentally attached to a plane's wings and flown over several states of Louisiana where they were left sitting unprotected on the tarmac for hours. The year before, four missile nose cones were accidentally sent to Taiwan instead of helicopter batteries. And, of course, that most serious of near disasters occurred back in January of 1961 when two nuclear bombs slipped from the belly of a B-52 flying over the North Carolina city of Greensboro. Both bombs were set to detonate, but failed to do so after suffering minor damage to the parts needed to initiate an explosion. A stroke of luck that evidently saved Greensboro from annihilation. The next question was, what's being done to improve the situation? And the answer is, before announcing his resignation in November, Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel announced $7.5 billion in extra funding over the next five years to cover management changes, training, and weapons upgrades. The piece notes that not only has President Obama overseen the slowest five-year reduction in warheads in the past 20 years, but the president, as we mentioned at the top of this story, has also called for one trillion dollars in nuclear modernization over 30 years, with a commitment to 400 land-based missiles, 100 new bombers, and 12 new missile-firing submarines. Yes, if there's one thing I think we've learned in the current war on terror, that nothing helps you root out jihadists hiding in caves in Afghanistan quite like submarines. And the piece notes that some defense experts think he's foolish to try and maintain a vast nuclear force created for 20th century superpower threats. And they quote Joseph Cirincioni, a global security expert and author of the book Nuclear Nightmares, as saying, it's not missileers who are at fault, it's the mission. Now, you know, I did have a chance to, to interview Mr. Cirincioni when I was filling in over at Inside at Capital Public Radio. And I can't remember, Mr. Milne, did we export that interview over here to uh, KDVS? Well, we'll have to check on that. And since I'm sure that what Mr. Srincioni has to say is important, if we didn't do it the first time, well, we'll get around to it the second time. And anyway, in closing, the final question, what do the Hawks say? And apparently even people like the former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General James Cartwright, thinks the U.S. should eliminate intercontinental ballistic missiles entirely and focus on smaller, quote, tactical 
nuclear weapons such as plane-carried bombs, which would, I guess, turn the clock back to 1956 before there was Sputnik. That actually is a good idea, although we're not optimistic we'll see it ever implemented. But at any rate, I think this might be a good time to take a deep breath, bring this show to a close, and have a cold one. And no, Mr. Miller, a cold one, not a cold war. All right, that that does it for our internet-only uh, program for this week, and uh, we'll probably have another one up in the next week or two. We'll see you then. This program was produced by Edward McGillan. You've been listening to an internet-only version of Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>